The following message is by Pastor Eric Ludy. More information about the church at Ellerslie is available at www.ellerslie.com. Majesty. What in the world is majesty? It's greatness. It's grandeur. It's strength. It's ability. It is a clear concrete understanding of how strong and immovable something is. For instance, one of the things that we oftentimes refer to as majestic are the mountains because they have presence and they have strength and you can shove all you want against a mountain and it's not going anywhere. Our God is who our God is. Whether or not the nations of this earth conspire together to try and change God or to alter God or to push God out of this world, you might as well attempt to push the Rocky Mountains into the Pacific Ocean. It's not going anywhere. And through all the generations that have worked together to try and get God out of the picture, to remove God out of the center, he hasn't moved an inch. So when will the next generation actually recognize That our God is victorious. Our God is majestic. Our generation is not beholding this. Our generation does not know this. We have Christians all throughout our generation, but they don't understand the majesty of our God. We sing songs about the majesty, but we don't oftentimes behold the majesty of God. I don't know that in one message I can actually introduce you to the majesty of our God, that's, that's for God to do. And I've said this before. Anytime you take on any theme in Scripture, a human is far too small to represent it. I have no business representing the majesty of God in a message. Human words being thrown out there. Let God demonstrate himself to the hearts of his people. Because he is so much bigger than what human words can, can somehow describe and introduce you to. But this message isn't about majesty as much as it is about majesty lost and what that means to us as the church, that we must do whatever it takes to see it return to the forefront of our culture. Psalm 12.1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. There is a concern in Psalm 12 that the godly man is actually going extinct in that generation, that there is a loss of something, and it is ceasing on planet Earth. Now, most of us rest with a complete confidence that, oh, God's in control, though. In other words, the godly man won't cease. The faithful won't disappear. David felt something here, and he's articulating it. And it's something, to be honest, that I have felt. And it is that something is ceasing within our generation. And that is we are losing the mighty men. We are, we are losing the aged and the ancient and the white-haired, gray-haired men of God who uphold the standards of righteousness and proclaim to their generation, Behold the Lord God. Bow before him. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. We have lost something in our generation, and it is disappearing before our eyes. I'm not the only one that notices this. I, I, was, I think I was acquainting uh, the students here at Ellerslie with uh, what the son, the oldest son of Leonard Ravenhill uh, said to me on the phone a few months ago. 
and that is that he's living in Argentina now, and he feels uh, the expiration date of America is past. We had our chance, and we failed, and now we just await judgment. Now, that's not my perspective on it, but I want you to realize that there are many out there that feel that we in America have been giving, given far too much, and we have shown no response to it. It's like an injection over and over again of medication, expensive medication into this dead body. It's just like, stop, let him go, he's dead. Do we have hope in this generation? That's the key question. Because something has been withdrawn from our culture, our Christian culture particularly. And what we've seen in the political realm, what we've seen in the Christian uh, circles, is we've seen a cliff where suddenly the deterioration is happening at a very marked pace. I'm not a doom and gloom guy, okay? So if you're concerned about a message that's going to be all depressing, this isn't a depressing message at all. I want you to know that we're in serious times. And you, as the church of Jesus Christ, are responsible to rise up and take Jesus Christ at his word. I want to prove that the expiration date of America is not past. I am interested in God's agenda in this nation. And I'm not willing to subside into silence. I was born in this generation. For some reason, I know what I know. And I see the truth of Jesus Christ. And I'm in America at the same time. And I'm not just going to say, yeah, it's over. I'm going to fight while I'm here. There is a job to be done for every Christian. But we are so comfortable in this age. We are so comfortable in this country that we don't know how to even get up off our thumbs and do something about it. We can hear truth over and over again, but we don't feel compelled to go into this culture and see it change for Jesus Christ. Whose blood in here is willing to be spent to see America turn? What would you as an individual be willing to give up to see America turn around? Do you care? For many of you, this is your homeland. Do you care? Do you care that it goes to hell in a handbasket? Do you care? I do. And I'm willing to do what it takes. I've asked God to take me out of this country more than a few times. Because it is, there is no more difficult place to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ than in America right now. There are hungry people all over this earth that are ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why in the world does God want me here? Well, as long as God wants me here, I say let's bring it. And let's bring it full force. Yes, we will be rejected. Yes, we will be politically incorrect. The system of our age will not like, will not desire, will not be attracted to what we bring. But for those that God has his hand on, his pressing in their soul, there will be an awakening and we will be a fragrance of life. On the verge, this is a quote from a guy named Michael Spencer. We are on the verge within 10 years of a major collapse of evangelical Christianity. This breakdown will follow the deterioration of the mainline Protestant world and will fundamentally alter the religious and cultural environment in the West. Within two generations, evangelicalism will be a house deserted of half its occupants. Millions of evangelicals will quit. Thousands of ministries will end. Christian media will be reduced, if not eliminated. Many Christian schools will go into rapid decline. Remember how I said at the very beginning, I'm not a doom and gloom guy? This message is one of hope. I'm sharing this with you, not so that you can get depressed. I refuse 
to stand by idly and do nothing. Let someone project the future. That's all this is. This isn't a prophecy. This is a projection saying at current course, this is where we are going to end up. Because evangelical Christianity is collapsing before our eyes in America. I'm a personal witness to this, by the way. On the, on the practical side of it, I would agree. I would say, yeah, that's true. On the spiritual side of it, I'm not going to take that sitting down. I'm just going to stand by and go, yeah, I guess that's just the way it's going to be. No way. There is a battle, and it's standing right in front of us. And yes, if we all lay down our arms and let the enemy come through and march in through the church of Jesus Christ, yeah, absolutely. But as long as you still have a sword and as long as there is still blood pumping through your body, you stand up for the truth of Jesus Christ. Too embarrassing? At some point, clinging to a belief in God is just going to be too embarrassing. Sam Harris, a neuroscientist, is one of the new atheists. It's a movement that is interested in absolutely destroying the Christian faith. They hate Christians. And their entire philosophy is once, these, once the culture finally gets a grip on itself, it'll be too embarrassing to be a Christian because it's a whole bunch of myths and fables. And when the Christians finally realize that they're standing on sand, it'll be too embarrassing to continue. The New Atheists. Gary Wolf, one of the leaders of the New Atheists, it is time to declare our positions. This is the challenge posed by the new atheists. We are called upon, we lax agnostics, we non-committal non-believers, we vague deists. We are called out, we fence-sitters, and told to help exercise this debilitating curse, the curse of faith. Well, those are fighting words as far as I'm concerned. You know what? It's interesting. The atheists can throw down the gauntlet and they can challenge the other atheists saying, hey, if you actually believe there is no God, then stand up and stand up against the thing in this culture that is causing the great problem. What is the problem? Faith. It's these religions out there that actually suppose that there is a God. They are the problem with culture. They are the issue. So if you really believe that there is no God, then you have to agree that Christians are the big problem in this nation. Let's exercise them out. Well, this is our watch, by the way, Christians. This is our watch. And I'm not going easily. I don't stand on sand. I stand on the word of God, which is revealed ages and generations ago and has proven itself to be 100% accurate. I am not going anywhere anytime soon. But I want to see the church of Christ rooted in the rock. I want to see something return. Something that the world could stand back the way they did in the Israelite army was marching through Canaan. And 31 hostile empires went down. And everyone was terrified because they realized that God was in their midst. Do they actually believe, does this world believe that God is in our midst? Christianity is a joke today. Because we don't have God in our midst. We do at a certain level. Don't get me wrong. But at the level of the early church, no. Ananias and Sapphira fall down dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And great fear came upon the believers. Do we have God in our midst? You need to realize when God comes into your midst at that level, he begins to purify the church at a whole other level. Impending doom... Voltaire said around 1778, within 100 years, the Bible and Christianity will be swept from existence and pass into history. 
This has been said by philosophers throughout the ages. This very concept. It cannot stand. The entire culture is marked against it. Christians, if you're a Christian, you're going to be fed to the lions. Soon it will be too hard to be a Christian. I mean, if you know that you're going to face crucifixion, why in the world would you continue in this? I mean, it's all myths and fables anyways. It just makes you feel good inside. Give it up. If it's going to mean an absolute destruction of your outer body, why would you hold on to these things? Because it's not just something that makes you feel good inside. It's truth. And Jesus Christ is the risen King of Kings. So what happened? A hundred years after 1778, Voltaire is a very intelligent man. Only 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society used Voltaire's press and house to produce stacks of Bibles. Beholding majesty. Let us remember who our God is. He is not pushed around by the philosophers of our age. He is majesty on high. He is greater than the Rocky Mountains as far as in his strength and his durability and his immovability. And no matter how much you press upon God, he is not going anywhere. The church of Jesus Christ must behold once again the living God. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened." In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would allow your church to see. Open the eyes of our heart. Help us to behold the living God again. Lord, if we could see the vision that Isaiah saw, Lord Jesus, it would change us at the depths of our being. We can read it, but we're not beholding it within our own souls. We aren't seeing it, Lord Jesus. I pray that we would see the majesty and the holiness and the blazing righteousness of the living God in our generation again. Please, Lord Jesus, may the church not subside into silence and accept the demise. Truth has fallen in the streets. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that the wolves in sheep's clothing that are masquerading as the leaders in the church today would be exposed and driven out. And the church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ, that long for the glory of Jesus, the high and lifted up one whose train fills the temple, the holy, holy, holy one. Lord, may the church that esteems him, that is willing to be bent to his word, to his, to his way, may they be drawn out 
May they be risen up and strengthened for the task at hand today. Back in the time of the Babylonian captivity, so the church had never been at a weaker point, if you will. The Hebrew culture is literally in captivity. Ezekiel is sitting by a river, and he is given a vision. And in our, in our training, we've talked about this vision, or he saw it. It actually came down from heaven. To even call it a vision might even be uh, not the proper term for it. But he saw the throne of God, known as the chariot of the cherubim in Scripture, held up by four cherubs. An incredible picture of God's glory, literally coming down. And in another scene in the book of Ezekiel, we see the chariot of the cherubim returning down. And he comes down to Ezekiel. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in mine house, and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell there upon me. Then I beheld, and lo, a likeness of the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his loins even downward, fire. And from his loins even upward is the appearance of brightness, is the color of amber. And he put forth the form of a hand, and took me by a lock of mine head. And the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven, and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh to jealousy. Then said he unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now the way toward the north. God interrupts Ezekiel as he's sitting before the elders of Israel, grabs him by a lock of his hair, and lifts him up. No pleasantries. God is mad. Something is happening in Israel, and God is feeling every inch of it. And he wants Ezekiel to feel it too. The problem is we are not in stride with God's emotion right now. We don't understand how disgraceful it is that those that would call themselves by the name of Jesus would live in such impurity. That would put the God of Tammuz, the God of jealousy, right square in the center of our life and then sing worship songs to Jesus Christ. There is a false God on the throne of the church and God has moved to jealousy And so he lifts up his man, Ezekiel, by a lock of his hair and lifts him up to show him the temple of God. What is significant about the temple? That's where the presence of God lives. And he says, look, do you see what I see? So I lifted up mine eyes the way toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. He said furthermore unto me, son of man, Seest thou what they do, even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go afar off from my sanctuary. But turn ye yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. God is not in his temple. He is retracted. He said, this is my house. But they have stuck a false god on the throne. And I am no longer there. His presence is withdrawn from the people. The mark of the inkhorn. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice. We, at, when we were going through this teaching in the chariot of the cherubim, it's a message called the chariot of the cherubim. I was talking about how God is not approaching Ezekiel the way that we think he should. If we were going to ponder it, 
You know, anytime he comes down, he gives Ezekiel commands. He doesn't give any pleasantries like, hi, Ezekiel. It's been a long time since we've talked. You know, I know that the, the Babylonian captivity might be pretty miserable, but I'm here to comfort you. He comes down with an agenda. You eat this scroll. And it says, I always picture him literally shoving the scroll in Ezekiel's mouth. He caused me to eat the scroll. <laughs> then he lifts him up by a, by a lock of his hair. Do you see it? And then what's he doing? He's crying into my ears with a loud voice. I mean, God has a pretty loud voice. Could you imagine getting a blare from God right in your ear? Okay, this isn't etiquette. This isn't how we do things down here on earth. God, whoa, settle down, buddy. God is moved. And he sees the abominations in Israel. And just in case you're wondering, does God care? He cares. He is looking for someone who will feel what he's feeling. He is looking for someone who will sigh and long and mourn for what has been lost in Israel. Cause them to have charge. So he says, he cried also in mine ears with a loud voice saying, cause them that have charge over the city to draw near. Every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lies toward the north. And every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they, that went, they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of God, and the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub. Whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. Okay, so God has called all those with slaughter weapons to come near. And then there's one man clothed in linen that has a writer's inkhorn. And God gives him a specific command. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Take all the men with slaughter weapons. The house of Israel is defiled. There is an abomination within it. Call the men with slaughter weapons and send them out into Jerusalem. Those that sigh and cry over these abominations, those that are mourning over the state of the church, put a mark on them. Everyone else, kill them. Serious stuff. And you're saying, boy, am I glad we're in the New Testament. Same God. Same fury. Same desire for righteousness. He has shed the precious blood of his son so that we could enter in and be different so that the house of God would not have any reason to provoke our God to jealousy. Why? Because the living God dwells within us. We are to be the temple of the living God. How dare we? as the church of Jesus Christ prostitute ourselves and allow in anything that is opposite of him to bring any profane thing into the temple of Jesus Christ. How dare we? We are trampling upon the blood, the precious life of Jesus. This is serious stuff, even more serious than then. Because now we have the blood of Jesus, not just the blood of lambs and goats. This is serious stuff to the church of Jesus Christ. If they were drawing the men with slaughter weapons together today 
And there was a man with an inkhorn looking out upon us. Would he mark us? Would he mark us as one that is sighing and crying over the abominations taking place in the temple? I have to feel that full weight too. I do care. And I do sigh. I don't always cry. But I do sigh. Lord Jesus, may we sigh and may we cry. May we plead that the living God would burden us with his burden. And if he must grab us by a lock of the hair and lift us up to allow us to see, may he do it. May the church of Jesus Christ be made ready to be useful in the hand of God as opposed to the very problem that he wants to wipe out. The Irish elk. Where's Hudson? Is he here? Hudson, did you want to come up and help me real quick? Hudson knows about the Irish elk. Remember we were learning about uh, animals that went extinct? What was the thing that we were looking at this week? The Irish elk. Oh, the Irish elk we looked at. Remember some of the other animals that went extinct? The sea cow. The sea cow. Hudson's really excited about the sea cow. How many bones does the sea cow have in it? Two. (laughs) Two. He's been asking me ever since why the sea cow only has two bones. And Daddy doesn't quite know the answer to that one. Uh, Can you think of any of the other animals that went extinct? The cave lion. The cave lion. Any others? Siberian tiger. The Siberian tiger. Any others? Dodo bird. (laughs) The the dodo bird. Daddy did a blog on the dodo bird. Uh, Any others? Remember the one that was half zebra, half horse? Yeah. What's that one called? Waga. Quagga. Quagga. Good job, buddy. And you were sad that all these animals went extinct, weren't you? Yeah. You were, you were crying about it. You were really sad that they went extinct. He's also really concerned about the endangered species. Uh, and so he wanted to see all the endangered species lists and go through them. What's your favorite endangered species? Seal. The seal. Why? Because it's cute. Because it's cute. Yeah, that's definitely, they know how to hold our heart. Okay, you can go back to your seat. Thanks, buddy. One of the things that has been stirred in me is when I've been studying this with Hudson, it's amazing the interests that my kids have have a tendency to be something God wants to speak to me about. And most of us probably don't spend a lot of emotional energy dealing with the fact that Tyrannosaurus Rex is no longer on planet Earth. It's like, oh, and then we weep over it, and it's, and it's a serious thing. It's interesting because Hudson has been greatly burdened by the fact that he will never get a chance to see these animals. And he's, you know, he's been praying for dinosaurs to return, and he's, uh, he really wants to see these animals. And then he's also deeply concerned over the endangered species list. You know, I, to be honest, I don't spend a lot of emotional energy in that direction. But Hudson is very concerned because other people may not know that if they kill that last elephant, he'll never get a chance to meet it. Okay, so it's an interesting emotion that I'm noticing in him. And I'm recognizing something, and that is this. The godly man is ceasing. Those faithful few in this generation that have this boldness and this majesty, this brawny gospel presence, 
they're endangered, if not extinct. In other words, if I were to ask you, have you seen such a man in this generation, such a woman in this generation, that you would say, they have the full package. They are living it before their generation in every regard, and we can behold them and say, that's what it looks like. And every single one of us can point at it and say, do you see that? That's what I'm talking about. That's what it's referring to in Scripture right there. That they have victory over sin. That they walk with a triumphant gait. That they are marked by peace, joy, and love in every word, action, and deed. That they, they have this victory deep within them. And they're immovable no matter what comes against them. Whether it's threats, whether it's trials, they rejoice in them. This version of Christianity, which I would contend is Christianity. It's not just a version. It is the real thing is if not extinct, it is endangered. But none of it, here Hudson is crying over the potential loss of a seal. And he cares deeply for this seal. Will we sigh and cry over the fact that true Christianity is nearly lost in our generation? And that most of us in here who esteem it at the highest level still have never witnessed it with our own eyes. You know what most of Ellerslie is? There's a whole bunch of young men and women of God who are saying, even though we haven't seen it, we believe. And we're willing to fight to see it return full force in us. But we haven't beheld it. We've read it. We've read the stories of Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael and C.T. Studd. We've read the stories of A.W. Tozier. We've read the stories of George Mueller. We've read the stories of Gladys Aylward. We've seen men and women do it in the past. But where is it today? Because what we need is not a story from the past. What we need are real life, flesh and blood Christians that are breathing on planet Earth in this generation. George Mueller's faith in previous generations is not doing anything for us now unless we grab a hold of it and plant it inside of us. Reese Howes and his willingness to stand for the orphan back then means nothing to us now unless we get inspired by it and come to our Jesus and take from his pantry and say, Lord Jesus, plant that deep within me. Gladys Aylward's superhuman audacity will be nothing to us unless we go to our Jesus and say, plant it deep within me in this generation. Who cares if you read it if you don't allow God to do it in you? Most people don't even read it anymore. At least we're reading it. But then there's one more step, believing it for yourself. You must go after it because there is a dying world out there and majesty is lost. And the way God demonstrates his majesty isn't by coming down on a chariot of cherubim. He does it through his church. His believing church that rise up and say, I take my God at his word. And if he says it, it's good enough for me. And then we live it. We live it with triumph before a generation. The Irish elk. I want to introduce you to the Irish elk. The Irish elk is no more. And when you hear about the Irish elk, you'll sort of feel a little of the pang of what Hudson feels. I felt it in studying the Irish elk. The Irish elk is one extraordinary creature, and it is no more. Fossil evidence demonstrates that there once was a great elk. Some say more like a deer, but Irish elk is a lot better than the Irish deer. Uh, 
that roamed Europe and parts of Asia. This mighty and majestic animal stood near seven feet in height just at his shoulders. And with an air of dominance, his regal brow reaching heights of near ten feet. So at the top of this, this elk's head was ten feet high. It's as high as a basketball hoop. But that's not it. But the crowning jewel of this massive elk was not his height alone, but his astounding rack of antlers, which boasted a span of 12 feet and arose an additional four to five feet above the elk's already superior brow. 14 to 15 feet in the air, his rack of antlers 12 feet wide. You can see it in the fossil record. It's real. They dug these things up. This is massive. That doesn't do it justice because you don't have anything to compare it to. Look at that thing. I want to meet it. (laughs) There's some drawings throughout uh, history. At least you can somewhat behold it. Look at this picture. Goliath was around 12 feet tall. You lay Goliath sideways and he's about, you know, the antler size of this elk. This is one massive creature. Now here's the reason I'm talking about the Irish elk. As I'm talking about majesty lost, this is majesty. When you see it, you gasp. And you're like, wow, could you imagine as you're hanging out in the forests of Asia or, you know, I don't know if Ireland, and suddenly this creature shows up. It causes a certain amount of dread. And at the same time, a certain amount of honor and awe and respect. You don't mess with the Irish elk unless you're a good distance away with a bow in hand. And even then, you have to be watchful. That thing starts going after you. You hit it in its hoof instead of where it's supposed to hit, and suddenly, going after you, picking you up with its rack and throwing you a good 500 feet. This is one incredible creature. Fossil evidence demonstrates... So that's the term I used at the top. Fossil fossil evidence demonstrates that this creature existed. And ironically, for most of you, you're not doubting it. You're saying, that's fine. I believe it. I didn't make it up, okay? Just so you know, fossil evidence demonstrates this. Here's what I want you to realize. Fossil evidence also demonstrates, in the spiritual sense, that great and mighty women of God roamed this earth. They were men and women with something so far beyond what the church of Jesus Christ has today. But we don't live in the time of those mighty men and women. And as a result, we've accepted the diminished standard of Christianity around us. And we don't challenge ourselves because the one sitting next to us is worse off than we are. And this is just normal Christianity, isn't it? This is not normal Christianity. Any more than a normal elk is that. That is the way an elk is supposed to be. How about that? This is majesty. And fossil evidence demonstrates that Christianity was once so much more. Here's the statement. With almost every extinct animal, this is what it says. It's really interesting when you study it. It says, despite being officially classified as extinct, sightings are still reported. Isn't that a great statement? It's like... Well, then how could you call it extinct if they have sightings of it? Well, there's no scientific sightings. They're all just, you know, sort of like UFO sightings, you know, where no one can actually prove it. 
That's exactly the way it is. You know how many Christians I've heard, that's not what God intended Christianity to be. No, Eric, that's ridiculous. And here I am talking about the Irish elk Christianity. And they're like, no, I've, I've seen an elk before. It doesn't look anything like that. You know, I'm, I'm as tall as the elk uh, that, that they've seen. And I'm saying the Irish elk is so much bigger. They're like, I don't know about that. But guess what? Despite being officially classified as extinct, Irish elk Christianity, sightings are still reported. It still exists. It still breathes on, 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 on this earth today. And just because you and I haven't witnessed it up close and we haven't beheld its majesty doesn't mean it's not there. And I, for one, am willing to let God use this life and say, God, make me an Irish elk. Make me the one where sightings are still reported. I saw it in Windsor. I was just passing through. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I took a wrong turn and suddenly... (laughs) They ran into an Irish elk Christian... The real thing. And they can't get it out of their mind. They're haunted by it when they're sleeping at night because they're not sighing and crying over the fact that they are so much less than what God intended them to be. May the church of Jesus Christ behold the Irish elk. The way God intended a man or a woman of God to be. What is the gospel supposed to do in a man? What I want to do is I want to go through and I want to read through what the Irish elk Christian is like, according to Scripture in the New Testament. And then I'd like to briefly go through just a few smatterings of men and women recently that have shown this. A protected life, fortressed by the Most High, impervious to the harassment of darkness. Reese Howells, who literally in the midst of bomb blasts, when they're bombing uh, Britain, when the Germans were coming in World War II, prayed over all his properties. He felt, because he had orphans on the property, he was, felt it was so significant. God said, pray and ask me, and I will secure all your properties. Everywhere around him, like two million pounds of damage, which is a ton of money. I mean, it must be like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. All around him in Swansea, not one of his properties damaged. Over and over throughout history, this is the case. God's men and women are untouchables. They have a job to do. And until they're ready to be spilled out and God defines that day, they are preserved for the task. Hudson Taylor, William and Catherine Booth, David Wilkerson, as he went into the inner city and crossing the switchblade. Unbelievable stories. Gladys Aylward, as that man came into her, her room and said, and he was going to take advantage of her. And she said, you cannot touch me. Because between you and me is my God. There is a barrier between you and me. And you cannot come near. The man said, I'm God to you. I can do whatever I want. And she said, take one step forward and you will find out. And the man turned and left. There is a protection for the saints of God. Gladys Aylward, Amy Carmichael. Strong and energetic for the things of God. Sharp and focused. Tenacious for truth. C.T. Studd, John Knox, John Wesley, Edward Payson, John Praying Hyde. Honorable and above reproach in every thought, attitude, word, and deed. David Brainerd, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, Reese Howells, Amy Carmichael, Leonard Ravenhill. Constant and unwavering in devotion, Leonard Ravenhill, Praying Hyde, Richard Wormbrand, Corey Tenboom. Triumphant over physical weakness, made strong to be poured out. Andrew Murray, C.T. Studd, C.T. Studd. 
was told by the medical profession he couldn't go to Africa. He was an older man, and he knew there were lost in Africa, unreached, that had never heard it in the interior column. David Livingston had been the only white man ever to go there. And so he came back with reports of how bad and desperate it was and the state of the heathen there. And C.T. looks around, and no one is willing to go. And he wants to. He's begging God for it, and God says, you can go. You can be my man. But his missionary organization would not let him go because he had to pass the physical tests first. And he was sickly and he was weak. And he says, that's not going to stop me. If God's calling me to interior Africa, to interior Africa, I'm going. C.T. Studd, an older man, pulls off the most impossible, most rigorous journeys into the middle of nowhere where there is no help for him. There's no medical assistance. And he lives there, I don't know what it was, 20 to 30 years, pours out his life and sees literally modern missions turned on its head in Africa. Heathen in Africa set free to know Jesus Christ. Some of the most extraordinary tales ever. Hudson Taylor was basically on his deathbed. And he cried out to God and said, God, you've called me to China. To China I will go. This is in his weakest state, and God raises him up. The doctor comes in and says, I have no way of explaining this. And Hudson Taylor said, God's called me to China. When God has called you, then nothing in this natural realm is going to hinder you from moving forward in it. Amy Carmichael, sickly, wasn't supposed to be a missionary. She defied it her entire life. Some of the most extraordinary stories out of a woman of God flow out of the life of Amy Carmichael. And yet she was told, you can't go on the mission field. You don't have the physical health to do it. Abiding in love, joy, peace, and a sacred calm. John Wesley said that he is always happy. Never is there a day when he is not happy. Jackie Pullinger basically said, you may have your own bed, but I know God's grace. She had something. And she lived in the walled city of Hong Kong amidst the destitute and the dying heroin addicts and prostitutes that were literally withering up. They had nothing in their life. This is a, the police wouldn't even go into the walled city. And Jackie went in. And she was the happiest, most robust, most radiant woman you've ever met. What does she have? She was an Irish elk in her generation. Richard Wormbrandt. I remember when I first watched a video of this man. It was on a little small television. It was a wobbly screen. Out walks this man who couldn't wear shoes because he was tortured for so many years on his feet. And so he walks without shoes up onto the stage and sits down. It's a frail old man. I've never sensed the love of God so palpably as I did when I watched Richard Wormbrandt speak. It was a warmth and a depth. And I remember crying out to God saying, God, I want what this man has. And God, of course, in his sense of humor said, uh, are you willing to go through whatever it takes to get what he has? How many years of torture did he go through, Eric? Do you really want it? Do you really want to become the Irish elk in this generation? Are you willing to go through what Richard Wormbrandt went through, standing for Jesus Christ in communist Romania and not backing down when the KGB came into the church and said, unless you change your message from the gospel to the communist agenda, you will be killed, tortured, stripped from your family. Your family will starve to death on the streets. Your choice. Richard Wormbrandt stands up in the midst of a pastor's conference where all these pastor friends of his were getting up and blaspheming the name of Jesus to save their skin. And he stood up and wiped the spit off of Christ's face. And as a result, all those many years later, Eric Ludi sees him, and he sees an Irish elk. He says, dear God, they're alive. 
dear God, they're still out there. Do it in me. Okay, I know there's a cost. Do it. This generation must see the Irish elk again. Unwavering in faith, persistent until the breaking of day. Men, Hyde goes up on the previous line, by the way. Men who would not back down. When God promised, they committed their life to it. George Mueller literally, as a statement of his calling to his generation, said, I will prove that God is still a prayer-answering God to my generation. And so he gave all his money away. And he said, watch what God will do. I will not take my need before any man. I will only take it before the throne of God. And a lifetime later, the church of Jesus Christ stands back witnessing an Irish elk. There is no way of describing George Mueller's life. The equivalent in our generation would be hundreds of millions of dollars came through the channel of his ministry. And he still was just a flow through and he gave it to the world. Supported a thousand orphans. Literally, they had no food. And he would set the table in faith saying, watch, God will provide. They didn't have food. And they're setting the table for all these orphans. Meanwhile, outside, the milk truck breaks down. Just passing along. And they have all this milk and cheese. It's going to go sour unless they do something about it. And they come up to this orphanage, knock on the door. They open it up and they say, do you have any need of milk and cheese? Come right on in. Irish elk Christianity. The kind of Christianity that is a testimony to the fact that God still lives today. And he still is a prayer answering God. Where are they? Where are they in our generation? Reese Howes, just read his book, Reese Howes Intercessor. It will change your life. John Praying Hyde, the man who literally took God on his word and God said, ask. Ask. He's in India. Do you believe, Reese, or John, that I can give you one soul a day in India? And will you take it by faith? And John believed. And every day for an entire year, at least one man was saved. Which in India is extraordinary. The next year, you know what God said? Will you believe for two? The next year, you know what he said? Three. A day. Four. How high did he get? I don't remember what it was. Four. Four a day. Some of the most extraordinary stories. Late at night, he knew that God still had four. And so he's walking, and he goes into a a little hut on the side of the road, and there were three men there, and he he knew they were going to be saved. But there was only three. There was still one. So he says, is there another? And they're like, no, this is all we have. Is there another? There must be another. Well, I mean, there's so-and-so out in the back shed. Bring him in. Unbelievable Irish elk Christianity that is inexplicable in our generation. We have no place for it. We have no grid for it. We've never seen it. We're used to little smallish elk. This is something different. A workman approved with the Holy Scriptures. Charles Spurgeon, A.W. Tozier, E.M. Bounds, Paris Reedhead. Endued with power, marked with the authority of Christ. Reese Howes, Jackie Pollinger, George Mueller, D.L. Moody. Jackie Pollinger. I mean, some of the most extraordinary stories. In the walled city of Hong Kong, they would stand outside of her little hut. You know, it wasn't a hut. It was in this big, huge high-rise. I don't know what to call it. A little room. And they would stand out there with a desire just to come in and find out, to receive what she has. Because she has something. Why? Because everyone she would pray for would become fat. And they would, you're fat. How'd you get fat? 
And the reason is because heroin addicts, everyone in the walled city was addicted to heroin. Heroin addicts lose weight and they shrivel up and they have no ability to maintain weight. But suddenly when people would come to Jesus, they'd be set free from their heroin addiction and they'd become fat. And so they were fat. The people in the walled city were becoming fat. And where were they getting this? They were getting it from that room there. And so these, this white woman in their midst had something. And everyone she prayed for would be set free. They didn't have to go through some detox. They were set free immediately even after 50 years of addiction to heroin. You explain that in any clinical environment and it's impossible. The stories of this woman are off the charts amazing. George Mueller, D.L. Moody. Marked by the face of a lion, passionate for the glory of God. You will not get more manly men than that list of five. Dear Lord Jesus, stick those five into the hearts of the men of our day. C.T. Studd. I mean, even his name has it. (laughs) This guy, we were trying to go through the quote today, but uh, some desire to live near the sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. (sighs) This man had a growl in his soul. Every single one of these. Leonard Ravenhill, all you have to do is, if you've known anything about Leonard Ravenhill, heard any sermon of Leonard Ravenhill, he had the face of a lion in this previous generation. And he turned it upside down. Even if you hated what he represented, you had to respect the guy because he would not back down. William Booth, talk about a man with a growl. And he took it to his generation. He would not back down. When he'd walk down the streets, they would huck fruit and vegetables at him. And he would just keep walking. And he went, he gave and poured out his life for the weak, the dying, and the lost. And no one could refute the fact that he lived it. He was an Irish elk in his generation. David Wilkerson, the guy preaches. Paris Reedhead, he has the ultimate voice. The glory of God. Ah, Go Paris. (laughs) These men are the inspiration for true masculinity in our generation of Christians. But they don't walk anymore except for David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson even has decided he doesn't even want to speak in America anymore. He has a church in, in New York. But it's like he wants to go where there's hunger. And so he travels all over the world to share the gospel. But very rarely will you see him anywhere else but in his church back home. We need what this man has. But the great men are looking to give what they have to places that are hungry for it. Dear Lord Jesus, may you raise up such men in this generation. Able to carry God's burdens, feel what God feels and share in his Gethsemane. One made strong for others, able to carry the burdens of the weak and downtrodden. John Prane Hyde died in his 40s and the reason was... His heart had experienced so much anxiety and travail in prayer that it shifted from one side of his ribcage to the other. And he was so weakened by it. He would literally pray for weeks on end without getting up, without eating. And he'd be weeping nearly the entire time because he felt the burden of the lost in India. And he would not let go until he saw that burden relieved. And out of that man's life came, as I said, one man a day, one one saved a day, two saved a day. For an entire year, three saved a day, four saved a day. And then an entire generation of missionaries that came cascading in to go after India. Amazing what these men carried. But they were willing to be broken. David Brainerd was broken as a man. He died at the age of 28. Edward Payson, Reese Howes, these men died young. 
because they carried the burden of Gethsemane, the weight of God's emotion. When God lifted them up by a lock of their hair, and he said, do you see it? They saw it, and it broke them to pieces. And they sighed and they cried over the abominations in Israel. Marked by audacity, boldness, courage, and daring. David Livingston, D.L. Moody, C.T. Studd, Amy Carmichael, Esteron Kim. Amy Carmichael literally went into India with the intent to rescue girls being sold into slave prostitution. At risk of her very life, this woman would go on rescue operations to save these girls and then to take them into a retreat and to raise them as her own. She raised I was somewhere around 1,000 girls this way rescuing them from temple prostitution. Esteron Kim, as a young girl in Korea, every single one was supposed to bow down to a false god. She was unwilling to bow. And as a result, she was thrown into prison and tortured. It's a young girl. Amazing audacity and willingness to stand for Jesus Christ. Are we able to see this today? Able to rejoice in suffering and find pleasure in persecution. William and Catherine Booth, as they're being pummeled with fruits and vegetables, cursed. They were reviled, and yet they rejoiced in it. John Wesley, as the famous story goes, as he's driving down in his carriage and he realizes he has not had anyone mad at him and persecute him in a couple days, he gets off of his, if his horse falls down on the cobblestone path and cries out to God and says, God, is there error in me? What has happened to me? And some guy looks over a fence and sees John Wesley, picks up a rock and hucks it at him. And John Wesley shouts to heaven, thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> Keith Green, as uh, Steve Camp, the old Christian musician, uh, was, his, was discipled by Keith Green. And Keith Green uh, well, Steve Camp was uh, beat up one afternoon for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Steve Camp came to Keith and said, they, they hit me and they, they abused me. And Keith goes, hey, hey, rejoice. This is good. The attitude of a different, it's a completely different mindset. Leonard Ravenhill, he knew he was hated and he loved it. Majesty returned. In Isaiah 58, then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy real reward. I don't know how many of you have seen the Irish elk in this generation. Sightings are made. Some of you have. What we could easily call extinct, I am convinced is not extinct. I had a, a blog on Friday and it was, it was saying, going the way of the dodo, which is the way of saying the way of extinction. When something goes the way of the dodo, that means it's disappeared and it's never to be seen again. And my end conclusion was, Christians don't go the way of the dodo. The Bible doesn't go the way of the dodo. True Christianity will never go the way of the dodo. It goes the way of the lamb. We go the way of the lamb. The dodo and the lamb are very similar. They're both weak. They both in their own DNA can't defend themselves. And the lamb is sure to die off. But the dodo doesn't have a shepherd. The lamb does. And this shepherd is committed to seeing the glory of God on this earth. He's committed to seeing his people gathered in. He is committed to hearing the prayers of the saints. 
And if there is one in this generation that is willing to rise up and say, God, take me. D.L. Moody's famous quote was, this world is yet to see what God will do through a man completely surrendered to him. What could God do if just one of you fully surrendered your life and said, not me, but you, Lord Jesus. Not me. Have me. Take this shell, take this temple and return to this earth full force. Please, Lord Jesus, I beg of you, don't let your truth fall in the streets on our watch. Yes, majesty in the church of Jesus Christ may be lost. And yes, with the trajectory of where the church is headed, in 10 years, evangelical Christianity may be extinct. Sure. But there is something stirring within the church of Jesus Christ. God loves it when the odds stack up against him. And right now, I would say this is the greatest time on planet Earth to be alive. I'm glad I'm alive right now. The odds are stacked. We're outgunned, outmanned, outlawed. And we get to stand in such a generation for the king. That's as good as it gets. The Irish elk's antlers would fall off every year. Could you imagine 12 feet of antler falling off every year? I'd hate to be around when they fell. It's like, uh, you're like pinned down underneath. Uh, They would grow them back in three to four months. Isn't that an incredible statement? 12 feet of antler grown back in three to four months. So I don't care if our antlers, the glory of the church has fallen off. I give us three to four months. If we repent, we turn the ship around and we say, we're serious about this. Lord Jesus, take your church in your hands. We want to be the apple of your eye. We want to be something that is a sweet-smelling fragrance before heaven. Let's see that rack of antler grown back. Let's see that majesty return so that this world will behold the Irish elk Christian once again. Not just in you and I as individuals, but in us as the corporate body. And that the fear of God would spread throughout this age because those people that have denied him their entire life would suddenly be pressed upon their soul and realize there is a God in Israel. The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. More information can be found on our website, www.ellersley.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. Know that we are cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.